chapter 6. Jesus had spent a night in prayer on a mountain, after which he chooses his 12 apostles from the, the large group of disciples. Jesus and his, his disciples then descend from the mountain to a, a large level plain, and they're surrounded by crowds of people, a great crowd of the, the regular followers that seem to be um, turning up wherever Jesus goes. Many have come from the region of Judea, many have come from Jerusalem, some had even made it from North Seacoast like Tyre and Sidon. And they come to experience his power. They come to hear him speak. No one spoke like Jesus. He spoke with authority. They come to be healed of their diseases and to have unclean spirits removed. He had the authority to heal them physically. He'd also demonstrated his power and authority to forgive sins when he'd healed the paralytic man. So in that huge crowd on the plain, Jesus' healing power was displayed. His power went out from him. He healed everyone. Jesus then begins to teach the crowd. There's nothing complicated with his teaching. It's direct. It's straightforward. It's easily understood by the people. You don't require a great education to understand what the Son of Man said. It's plain teaching on the plain. So Jesus begins with four blessings. And these blessings point to the reward a follower of the Son of Man will receive in heaven. And then Jesus contrasts those four blessings with four woes. And these are reserved for those who've done what they can to prosper in this life. Often at the expense of the poor and the hungry, the despised and the persecuted. Their gain won't last. Jesus is clear that those who follow him will face enemies. He tells us how we're to deal with these enemies. He says, love your enemies. There should be no spirit of animosity toward them. Rather, uh, the spirit of kindness and generosity. Anyone can be kind towards their friends. But we should be prepared to lend to our enemies without expecting to be repaid. To be compassionate, because your Heavenly Father is compassionate. Our approach towards others is to be based on the character of God. We, can, we know we can only do this if God dwells in us. So we're going to look at the, the last part of Jesus' teaching on the plane in three sections. Firstly, fault, verses 39 to 42, and then fruit, verses 43 to 45, and finally, foundation, 46 to 49. Fault, fruit, and foundation. So firstly, fruit. I'm actually going to reverse a couple of verses and begin from 37, because that's where this line of teaching really starts. And Jesus is clear that we aren't to be fault finders. We aren't to treat others as if they're somehow inferior to us. And Jesus' teaching here it speaks right into the situation in the Corinthian church, which we've been looking at in the mornings. The blindness they had to their own faults and failings, but with the self-appointed authority to pass judgment on others. 
to call out others for their failures and with complete blindness to their own. Now Jesus isn't saying here that we aren't to judge. It's the nature of the judging he's dealing with here. Our judgment should be a restorative judgment, not a condemning judgment. There needs to be forgiveness and generosity. You can only have that if you practice the correct judgment. The judgment of restoration. Jesus was never a, a do as I say, not as I do teacher. Every word that he spoke was completely backed up by his perfect life. Jesus freely gave himself. He wants those who follow him to do the same. You won't go without. The picture given here is of a market store where grain would be poured out into a container. And this generous storeholder would pour it to the point of the grain spilling over the sides of the container. At the end of verse 38, it literally says this. By the measure with which you measure, it will be measured back to you. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 9, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And this kind of generosity was demonstrated in the very early church. Luke tells us that the believers held all things in common, that they sold their possessions and property and distributed all the proceeds to all as any had need. We are to give to God's cause liberally, just as Jesus gave himself for us in the same spirit of willingness. We're also to be careful who we follow. We are to mindlessly follow someone who has assumed authority. It would be like a, a blind person leading another blind person. That's not going to end well. We must be careful who our teachers are, whether they're dead or alive. Back in the times of, of Jesus, a teacher was different to the teachers of today who give lectures or teaching classes with the teaching life and their private life quite separate. The teachers in Jesus' time were far more than that. It would include their private life as well. And so the, the student was expected to model themselves on their teacher. Now Paul, he set the example for the Corinthians. He told them to imitate him. He considered himself to be their spiritual father. He's expressing the closeness a, a student would have with their teacher. Imagine if, if Paul was, was blind to his own flaws and in his puffed up assumed authority he tells the Corinthian church to follow his example. It would be like a blind person leading another blind person. And inevitably they'll eventually fall into a pit. The teachers need to be willing to be self-critical and, and honest with themselves. You can't go around on the moral high ground finding fault with others without a great deal of self-examination first. You'd be the worst kind of hypocrite to take the moral high ground, to have a beam in your own eye whilst picking out specks from others. And Paul, he was a phenomenal spiritual father to the Corinthian church. 
He was someone to model, someone to imitate. Now he did a great deal of self-examining throughout his life. He considered himself to be the least of all the saints. He tells the Corinthians, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. As I doubt, I find this particularly challenging teaching. What example am I setting to my children? Am I honest with myself? Do I do enough self-examination? I'm not nitpicking other people's faults to make myself feel superior. I'm not giving them the wrong impression of what a Christian looks like, am I, to my children? I've got to be careful. You'd be surprised at who takes notice of your behaviour and your attitude towards others, especially when they know you're a Christian. It might be the way you interact with work gossip or how you speak about other people when they're not there or how you interact online. Whatever the circumstance, are we honest with ourselves? Are we self-examined? Have we taken the log out of our own eye before we start picking specks out of others. So we come to fruit, verse 43 to 45. Now Jesus is echoing the teaching of John the Baptist here. John told us in, in Luke 3 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And after John was questioned by the crowds as to what that fruit would look like, John gives them practical guidance. He says, generously give to whoever's in need. Don't deal dishonestly. Be content. Now these are outward workings of the reality within. A repentant person's heart will bear fruit in line with the relationship that they have with God. A tree is identified by its fruit. It's impossible to get figs from thorn bushes and, and grapes from brambles. It's impossible to get fruit from something that doesn't produce fruit. As we saw this morning in the Corinthian church, there has to be a change in behaviour when you're a Christian. You can't live how you want. It's not possible. James 2 verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. When we become a Christian, we're changed from the inside out. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, and the things that we used to do, we don't want to do anymore. We still sin, we still fall, we still fail, but the trajectory of our life has completely changed. Our desires are so different from before, so our outward behaviour should reflect what's happened on the inside. And where I work, we have a customer that expects the best but they're not willing to pay for the best. They'll only pay enough for average. They refuse to, to pay for the best quality tooling. They won't accept um, the, the cost for the best quality materials. And despite this, they expect the outcome with this substandard, substandard tooling and the inferior materials to, to match the expectation they have of, of getting the best. It seems no matter how many times you explain it to them, 
It doesn't seem to sink in. You can't expect a fantastic product when you'll only pay money for bog standard. It will never meet the expectation. It's impossible. Now Jesus makes clear what a person is in their natural state in Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. That's rotten fruit. In our natural state, there's absolutely no chance of producing good fruit. It's impossible. It's all thorn bushes and brambles. Jesus is concerned about the motives of our hearts. The challenge is not, can we live a good enough life to produce good fruit under our own steam? That's not it. We'll never be good enough. The challenge is to recognize we can't do it ourselves and to turn to God, acknowledging our sins so that in his strength, we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Listen to this from Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You and I, we we can't make it to heaven under our own steam. We could never meet the expectations. We're too defiled by our sin. We need to be robed in Christ's righteousness. He met the expectations for us. Only then when we've submitted ourselves to him will our heart motives be right and we'll be able in in a measure in this life to live as God intends us to live. We come to foundation, verses 46 to 49. Malachi 1 verse 6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. See, casual faith isn't enough. You need solid foundations. You need deep roots. Jesus calls out those who showed outward respect towards him, but it hadn't reached their heart. Actions speak louder than words. We can't be flippant in how we deal with God. Now, we live in a world that is seemingly full of fake news. There's so much stuff pushed out on social media dressed up as fact when it's actually falsehood. And if it was put under the, under the appropriate scrutiny, it would be shown up for what it is. I was listening to a, a podcast a few days ago, 
and the pre presenter was trying to, to ascertain whether um, something was true or not. He suspected it wasn't true. And to check he was on the, the right track, he contacted an expert with the right field of expertise. And he was able to conclusively debunk this truth claim. There were no grounds on which that particular truth claim could be made. It can be very difficult to work out what's truth and what isn't until something momentous happens, perhaps. Now, Jesus gives us an illustration of two house builders to, to demonstrate the difference between genuine and fake obedience to God. The first builder illustrates the person who comes to Jesus, he listens to his authoritative teaching, and obeys him, living a life of repentance. And this builder, he makes sure that the foundations of this house are solid. He's not just content with uh, digging down into the soil a little bit. He keeps digging down and down and down until he reaches rock. And he lays the foundation of his house on that. The house that sits on such a foundation is able to withstand whatever's thrown at it. Even if floodwaters rise and break against it, it's not going anywhere because its foundations are solid. They're laid on underlying rock. The builder's done a good job. He's intended for this house to last. He knew that the house would have to withstand various storms throughout its existence. And he's made sure it could withstand them. Now, by contrast, the, the second builder illustrates the person that comes to Jesus, hears his authoritative teaching, but he isn't changed by it. They don't obey Jesus' words. And that person is, is like a builder that doesn't bother with foundations at all. He just slaps up this house in no time. On the face of it, this house looks just as good as the other builder's house who spent so much time digging and digging and digging to get those foundations down to rock. In fact, this second house looks even grander. He's been able to splash a bit more cash on the, on the outward appearance seeing as he saved so much money and not building any foundations. As time goes by, you can imagine other people questioning why it took so long for the, for the first builder to complete his house. Why did he dig so far down? Why did he just build it the same way the second builder did? He'd save himself so much money. He'd save himself so much time. He'd save himself so much effort. And he'd be able to tart up the, ex the appearance of this house a little bit. He just looks a little bit bland in comparison. Well, the reason for all this work, all those foundations of the first builder's house, manifests itself when these houses have to face a storm. And whilst that first builder's house, it can withstand the flood water rising and breaking against it, the second builder's house collapses in on itself. It has no structural integrity. It can't cope with the storm. And Jesus' point here is, is very straightforward. There's no substitute to obeying the words of God. You might have a great intellectual, intellectual grasp of the, of the truths of the Bible. You might say all the right things. But if you don't obey the words of God, it's completely useless when it comes to it. 
go back to Deuteronomy 4, and, and Moses tells the Israelites how they can take possession of the promised land. He says, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am teaching you to follow, so that you may live, enter, and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. You must not add anything to what I command you, or take anything away from it, so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you. The Israelites will take possession of the promised land by keeping the commandments of the Lord. We need to obey God's word. So what does the, the flood water represent in Jesus' illustration? Well, it may represent a, a particular period of, of difficulty or, or suffering in a person's life. Now, there have been many instances where a well-known Christian has, has renounced their faith after going through a particularly difficult time. People who've written great Christian books, songs, who are great speakers and, and teachers. They've all renounced their faith. See, just like the second builder, the house looked great. These people appeared to be solid Christians on the outside. However, the, the flood water of difficulty has found out that they have no foundations and their faith collapses in on itself. They've said the right things. They've taught the right things. They've heard and read the authoritative words of God. But they haven't obeyed him. They haven't obeyed those words. Their faith is false. Well, whilst there are clear examples of, of Christians who've renounced their faith, those people who didn't really have a faith at all, there are instances that don't manifest themselves in this life. The fact that Jesus, in his illustration, uses flood water as a, as a test against the houses gives us undertones of ultimate judgment. Reminds us of the flood when God wiped out everything on the earth, all except for Noah and his immediate family. Out of all the inhabitants of the, of the earth, only eight were saved. The flood water, I think it points us to the final day of judgment when each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will each have to give an account of ourselves to God. Only those rooted and grounded on the rock of ages will be able to endure the day of his coming. Those who don't have these foundations, they will be ruined for all eternity. Jesus spoke a little later on in Luke. Uh, I think it's a great summation of his, of his teaching here. And it's from Luke 13. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able to once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open for us. And he will answer you. I don't know where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, you evildoers. 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this. Some who were last will be first, and some who are first will be last. So I've got three things to consider as we, as we wrap up this plain teaching on the plane. Firstly, that the, the Christian life, it requires an inward change. It requires obedience to God's word. We all need a heart change. We need a heart of stone taking out of us and a heart of flesh to be put in. Only God can do that. We need to obey his words. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. We must change from our me-centeredness, going about as lords of our own lives, and instead submit ourselves to the Lord. If you don't submit to him, you'll lose your life, ultimately. He will tell you to get away. You won't be allowed to enter the kingdom of God on that final judgment day. Number two, the Christian life requires an attitude of repentance. We don't just repent at the outset and then waltz our way through the rest of our life. We are to constantly confess our sins before God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To walk faithfully, And to be able to produce good fruit, we must be repentant people. To be repentant requires us to self-examine ourselves. We can't be blind to our faults and and our failings, our flaws. We can't let our sins grow and not be dealt with. We bring our sins into the light now, not to hide them in darkness. See, there will be a day when everyone's hidden sins will be exposed. They'll be uncovered. The purposes of every person's heart will be disclosed. We need to mourn our sin now before God and we'll be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Thirdly and and lastly, the Christian life requires a solid foundation. It's not an intellectual exercise or a way to gain power or influence or just a familiar thing that you do. If that's what it's all about for you, you won't be able to stand when it matters most. When you're called to give an account before God. The Christian life needs to be founded on Jesus Christ. See, when the Apostle Paul explained how he built the church at Corinth, he said that the the foundation of the church was Jesus Christ. So can you say, like David in Psalm 18, which we heard at the very beginning, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock 
my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Amen. We're going to close by singing, O Church, Arise. just read the the last few verses of Psalm 18. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, 
Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up from above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Amen.